Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Friends, in my second book, Beyond the Walls, I devote an entire chapter to senior care. In fact, that chapter is in section two, and it's all about the humanistic movements in healthcare. The fact is that our healthcare system does not deliver customized, personalized, or contextualized care for seniors, especially seniors with complex chronic medical conditions and complex psychosocial challenges. The truth is that the system does not support primary care providers in the way they need to be supported in order to deliver optimal care for seniors. In this interview, we are going to learn about a healthcare payer that is dedicating itself to senior care and the organization's initiatives programs they formed to really optimize care for the approximately 64 million seniors in this country and of course their family members. Again, so excited. Uh, I've heard so much about this person for so long. Dr. Vivek Garg is the chief medical officer at Humana's primary care organization, which includes Centerwell Senior Care and Conviva Care Centers. Prior to being at Humana, Dr. Garg served as the chief medical officer of Caremore and Aspire Health. Prior to that, he served as the medical director at Oscar Health. During that time, he also held an appointment as a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College. From 2012 to 2014, Dr. Garg was the national medical director at the One Medical Group. He also worked at McKinsey and Company and served at the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, MedPAC, a congressional advisory body on payment innovation in Medicare. Dr. Garg graduated summa cum laude from Yale University with a bachelor's in biology. He earned his MD degree from Harvard Medical School and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. He received his training in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, Vivek, uh, so, so glad you're here with us today. How are you doing? Jeff, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm, I'm doing well, and uh, you recited a lot of the background. I'm excited about what's coming in healthcare and the role we can play. Well, thank you, Vivek. Before we dive in, can you give us a 60, 90 second elevator speech on the primary care organization within Humana and, and even more specifically on the senior care programs, which include obviously CareWell and Conviva? Absolutely. So our group is a national primary care group focused on seniors at CenterWell and Conviva. And we are really representatives of Humana's longstanding commitment to serving seniors through Medicare Advantage and comprehensive primary care and now other services and important needs that seniors have. And so Humana has been, I think, the largest ecosystem enabler of comprehensive primary care for seniors. The organization has been early partners for ChenMed, Oak Street, Iora, Alidaid, Agilon, and multiple health systems and medical groups that wanted to progress into more of a population view and mentality around senior care. So Centerwell and Conviva are our own primary care group. We are payer agnostic. We work with multiple other Medicare Advantage plans, including Humana. We also work with Medicare seniors who choose traditional Medicare through our ACO programs. 
And so our group now serves over 260,000 patients in 12 states. We have over 260 centers that we have our clinical team serving patients in right now, and we are growing rapidly. The goal is really to bring this more comprehensive type of primary care to seniors because there is a longstanding conviction about the benefit of this model, both the access we can create for seniors who may be lower income or living in areas with less access to care, and also how the comprehensiveness of the care leads to better health and outcomes. And those are all really important things that we want to achieve for our seniors that we're caring for. Wow, that was an excellent overview. And I've got a couple of follow-up questions, which I'm going to hold for now, but I, I want to come back to uh, particularly about what you called your early partnerships with other Medicare Advantage uh, providers like ChenMed and Oak Street, and, and also how you work with traditional Medicare payments, not the Medicare Advantage. Let's come back to that, but let's start with this, the problem. This is not a nice to have. This is not an ancillary thing. This seems to me to be a core need in American healthcare to have segmented, customized, personalized care specifically for seniors. Could you just for a moment what is the problem you all are solving with? Why has Humana really dedicated its strategy to primary care and in particular senior care? I think anybody working in Medicare, whether you're operating a Medicare Advantage plan or looking at it from a policy perspective or trying to serve patients who get their health insurance coverage through a Medicare framework, private or public, see that really typical care does not serve the unique needs of seniors. Seniors often develop multiple chronic conditions. We all know that. But there's an increasing sense of isolation. There's different types of mental health and neurologic conditions that progress. And as people age, our bodies change, our mindset changes, our priorities change. And so at some point, you tip over into needing to go from a disease-specific focus to really the principles of geriatric care where you look at complexity holistically. There's more involvement of caregivers and family members. You really think about the quality of life and traditional clinical goals together in the social fabric, the family fabric, the community fabric that people live in. And it's very common for a senior who's aging to say, you know, to really make choices when they're better attended to that are really around the daily experience they want to have in their life and how their intersection with their medical care can help or frankly hinder it. And so based on the customized needs which you flagged Zev, there is such an intense need to bring a different framework to our seniors and to help them through those life journeys and to shape the medical intersection on their behalf to be more appropriate for the things that they're trying to think through, decide on, and take care of in the reality that is unfolding for them. And so we find that to be a really important problem. And again, as if you're operating a Medicare Advantage plan, you see it in the data. You see it in the poor access to care. You see it in people ending up in the hospital or getting surgeries that they might not have chosen to or frankly could have been prevented with better upstream management. So I think comprehensive primary care stands out as both a senior-specific opportunity, but to take a step back, a broader opportunity for the country where we have tremendously underinvested in primary care infrastructure. I think we saw that in COVID, and it's also not just for seniors. Many other developed countries spend three times more than we spend on primary care and see that public health and population health benefit. And essentially, we're replicating that in a full risk care delivery model. 
We end up in Humana's published studies about this in its value-based care report and follows the arrangements reallocating the health plan dollar so that 15 to 17% of it goes to primary care. And that goes directly into staffing and broader care teams, smaller panels for physicians, more partnership with social workers and pharmacists, more time with patients, more frequent visits. That's where the funding is going. It's to build a more comprehensive, intensive support model to address the specific needs of seniors. I'm so glad you talked about this way, and I'm not sure how many folks, including providers and managers and executives in healthcare, actually understand this difference, why senior care is different. And I, I love the way you pointed out that it really is a shift in care. You can't approach it, as you point out, in the way you approach the vast majority of adults with chronic diseases. You're not dealing with one chronic disease or one particular episode of care or a procedure or whatnot. You're dealing with a level of complexity where, again, as, as you are very familiar with as a practicing physician, that we're dealing with multiple chronic conditions, multiple psychosocial issues as people age. You're dealing with frail elderly. You're dealing with polypharmacy. Uh, the fact that medications act differently as we get older and have different and, and more severe impact on people. And uh, issues, for instance, and we know it as a fact that as you start to get over 70, 75, uh, the prevalence of dementia is just there and it's just a fact of life. And so these are multiple issues, a level of complexity that cannot be approached in the same way with the same resources, with the same protocols as you would the rest of your patients and the rest of your community. And so what you're saying is we need a different type of care that is, first of all, more resourced than the rest of primary care, as you're pointing out. But then it is a multiple disciplines, a coordinated team that includes expertise, protocols of care, a network of care, including certain specialists, that is just different. And, and I just want to make sure I'm, I'm capturing, because I just think that is an absolutely brilliant point that I just don't think most of American healthcare understands that point. I think you captured it well, Zev, and you know, obviously some people have commented on the lack of geriatric expertise in the country. Geriatricians train for additional years to become clinical experts in their domains that we're talking about. And so we're very fortunate on our Center Well and Conviva teams to have people who've done additional training beyond their core nurse practitioner or physician education to become an internist or family medicine clinician. They've gone and done geriatrics fellowship, lifestyle medicine training, palliative care, and mm -hmm. primary care in this type of model is a way for their expertise to be scaled because we won't have enough of those specialists yeah. in these domains. We have yeah. to lever up the general primary care ecosystem to make sure that the protocols and clinical management and the competencies address these really important needs. And all you have to do, and this is how, how much opportunity is still ahead, is think about the experience of any loved one who is a senior who is engaging in significant medical care. And you can just develop, it, it doesn't take any thoughtfulness, it doesn't, every person going through that can immediately list many, many things that happen or don't happen where it should be different. And that is the frustration that our type of model is meant to solve. And it's part of the pride of being people's primary care home. And I think many, all primary care clinicians and team members take pride in that label of being the place that people can go to and trying to organize the care with them and trying to bring the system towards these more holistic conversations. 
and decisions that they end up having with patients. Well, you know, I think you raise another really important point that I don't believe most Americans or even most healthcare folks are familiar with. The knee-jerk response may, may be something like, well, that's why we have geriatrics and geriatricians, just send seniors to geriatricians. And as you point out, first of all, there are only at this point in time, 7,000 geriatricians in the entire country, far less than we need, probably four, five, six, 10 times less than we need. And by the way, those 7,000, they do not practice full-time. Largely, you know, they also do academics and research and teaching. And so we probably have, you know, half that number of actual full-time geriatricians working, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? For a country our size. And even worse than that, and it was just an article, I don't know if you saw this, I think it was in, it might've been in JAMA, I forget where it was, but I, I started to read it and, and basically it talked about the demise of the field of geriatrics. And so we're not paying mm -hmm. geriatricians. I mean, they make less than any other primary care physician as far as mm -hmm. I know. And so we're seeing the fellowship programs you're talking about in geriatrics are going largely unfilled. No one is going into, or very few people are going into geriatrics because quite honestly, you almost can't afford to. After you finish college and, and medical school, the amount of debt people have, and it is such a tough, tough field. And so we don't have the geriatricians, we don't have the palliative care experts. And so I think what that underscores is the need for a system of care, for a team-based approach, a system-based approach based in technology, based in protocol, based in standards of care that take all of that knowledge and embed it into something so we we don't rely on something which we don't have anymore, which and we're not going to have unless something radically changes, which is geriatric specialized care. I'm uh, just curious if how you think about what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel really proud and appreciative of this opportunity to be a part of Center Wellen Viva when I meet clinicians who feel like their their professional passion can be reactivated and supported through this type of model. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there that obviously we have a, a shortage of clinicians in some ways and, and really a misallocation towards the population needs. And, and we need more of what you just talked about, Zev. But we also expect that PCPs should have two and a half thousand patient panels without recognizing the differences and complexities and needs or the opportunity to create these more specific models of care for people based on the, the clustering of their needs and the types of interventions and supports that would really make a difference. One way we could solve this shortage of trained, passionate healthcare professionals is to make sure that models like this and other models that provide effective care, improved outcomes, and more clinician sustainability are really out there and known and selected uh, as preferred options for people. And I think we need to reactivate the pipeline of people who feel pride around primary care. We need a marketing campaign nationally about the importance of primary care. We need the financial structures, not just Medicare organizations, but where we fund training spots and what we orient training resources towards to really tip towards primary care for these types of needs because we're, we're really suffering as a population without it. I agree. And, and, you know, last point here before we dive into, I'd love for you to, to go more specifically into the care well model of care, what that team looks like, how it works, how it delivers care, a little bit more in that detail. But one last point here, and I do think this is important, and I've had this discussion, argument, debate for years now, the argument against devoted, dedicated senior clinics where literally the physician and the team 
It's customized, segmented care. This is what we do. We don't take care of the rest of the population. We take care of seniors. Here's the argument, as I understand it, for this and the need for it, which is that, you know, the question is, why can't I just, as a primary care physician, why can't I see the entire population and then throw in a few seniors in there? And I think fundamentally that doesn't work because the resources you need, the protocols you need, the expertise you need, that team-based care, it is incredibly costly. And it would be wasteful for the entire population because quite honestly, I don't think the, the vast, vast majority of patients in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s need that level of care, but the elderly do. And you cannot afford to have that team at your beck and call be part of a team like that. It is just cost prohibitive, except for a sub sub small segment of the population in which seniors are there, as well as a few others. There you actually need that hands-on, intensive, team-based, coordinated care with all the resources, all the protocols, all the technology, all of the network, including getting into the home, palliative care, et cetera, et cetera. That's where you need it. And that's why I do think a customized, segmented, focused, contextualized senior care team and model of care is critically important. I mean, that's my story. I, I assume it's yours just given how much investment Humana has made in this. This is the reason our group exists. This is the reason those partnerships have existed for a long time with other colleagues in the space. And, you know, I think it's reflective of the need to look at people based on their unique needs and segments of those needs and mm -hmm. design models of primary care. And so the resourcing and underinvestment is really global for primary care nationally. And then the specific uh, approaches to care that might make sense for you know, someone in their 20s, as you said, or someone in it with a different set of issues, those also need to be attended to. So uh, if we could find a way to increase the investment to keep enabling frameworks like the ones we have right now through Medicare, which should continue to flourish and expand, I think we'll be in a better place a decade from now from having more customized care for types of needs and then hopefully better coordination across them as people progress in their life and health journey. And just one quick note is we've tried to attend to some of the variation that exists even in the senior population, mm -hmm. because obviously it's not a monolithic block. That's another trope mm -hmm. that needs to be deconstructed. So there are many seniors for whom they enjoy going to a clinic. There's mm -hmm. others who would prefer more convenience and maybe have a lighter level of complexity who want to have a virtual first access point to primary care, or others who may have certain functional needs where they're frail and things need to come to them more. And so our group and others are doing things to expand our virtual care services, uh, create home-based primary care programs so that we can attend to other needs within the broader senior population. Vivek, you're hitting on such critical points. And I'll tell you, I, I've been working in this field for years now. We actually started to do what you were talking about. We, we looked at the senior care population and what we discovered soon enough, in fact, it wasn't, like you said, a home, by no means a homogeneous segment of the population. And in fact, I forget the exact number, but we had something like eight to 12 different sub-segments mm -hmm. that we needed to customize just within the so-called senior population. And so even within that small segment, there's a lot of heterogeneity, as you say, and a lot of customization that is required because a senior is not a senior and it's not a senior. And I don't even know if 12 
segments is enough. It really is an issue, I think, as you're getting to, which is you have to personalize care for that particular individual and their family needs. And again, it just underscores the need for a specialized type of program or clinic that in which this is their focus and which, again, the business model and the clinical model are both viable. But I want to get off of this, although, again, brilliant, brilliant points. Uh, So glad you're raising them. Tell us about CareWell. Tell us what the model actually looks like. So, Jeff, I just want to point out on behalf of my colleagues, uh, it's CenterWell and Conviva, uh, just to be clear. Oh, I am so um, sorry. So, no, no worries. I just want to point it out. Uh, so in CenterWell and Conviva, you know, the care model is really oriented around interdisciplinary, team-based care, uh, oriented around our physicians for the primary responsibility owners for the primary care of our seniors. So we, like other groups in our category, have smaller panels. Uh, for our PCPs on the order of 500 to 600 patients, depending on complexity and newness. Uh, We really wrap around those physician teams, medical assistant partnership, uh, care management nurse partnership, social workers, and increasingly community health workers, behavioral health professionals, whether they're employed by us or closely partnered through other clinical service partners who can deliver that type of care in real time. Uh, and then pharmacy. Those are some of the important dimensions that we found are consistently needed across the needs of seniors at different degrees at different times. And so we've built a high-risk team-based care model that includes those perspectives and skill sets so that we can bring that focus to our patients and, and not keep them in a trap of, you know, death by referral. And right now, the traditional medical ecosystem is organized by referral. You see one person and they refer you to three other people and then you have to go set it up, and then who's integrating all of that? And so our, our patients need that team-based support, and we build that into our clinical model. Uh, there's important enablers of this kind of model, and uh, all of our, our organization and others have been on a journey to really equip our clinical teams with the insights they need about how, what their patients' needs are and what's happening with them. So there's an underlying infrastructure around who is your panel, What are their quality needs and care gaps? Uh, What's the engagement rate? Are they due for a visit? And what's the pattern of care that's happening outside the four walls of primary care? And unfortunately, in the past 20 or 30 years, we've gone away from primary care being uh, in the middle and quarterbacks and all of that to being fax receivers of things that happen to their patients without their involvement or ability to partner around. And so our model tries to turn that back on its head, and we equip people with real-time data about admissions. We have a transitions of care program. And then obviously we start to look at things like, you know, how do we support people when they're in those other episodes of care? And so we take the responsibility for the team, both to deliver care and understand the needs of seniors when they're in front of them, but also to play that connectivity and supervision and partnership role. because. Otherwise, we're just disconnecting their care from the people they've spent the most time with and the people often with the most long-term orientation about what they're really seeking in their health and their life. Scaling this kind of medical group is a constant joy and a challenge to work through. Uh, But I will say that when we get it right, clinicians really tell us that this is what they hope their practices would be like. And so we often recruit Uh, experienced clinicians of all sorts from existing, mostly fee-for-service-oriented environments. 
and because we go to many geographies where you know there's there's not too many other groups like ours there may be one or two there may be zero uh, it really is a new thing for a lot of people and so a big part of what we do also to support them is obviously we need to be helping them to understand a value-based care mindset and then how to put that into action so we spend a lot of time and attention on training and then one of the things i focused on is really making sure we have experienced physician leaders both who we've developed internally and i say physician but i mean more broadly obviously nurse leadership and others but leadership that are clinicians that have grown up internally and also come to us from other organizations with this type of experience so that they can play that support and guidance role because it's such a huge transition for uh, very well-intended effective clinicians to try to take all this responsibility on and do it in a new way so yeah let me let's dive into that a little bit if i'm a physician let's start from a physician perspective i'm a physician i've walked into this practice what is different about this practice what am i seeing around me day to day that is different from the practice i left in a more fee-for-service generic primary care model great questions uh, uh, so a couple of things strike people right away and then as they get into their practice uh, i think there's another layer initially you walk in and you say well this clinic is not where most clinics are so we are placing our clinics in places where underserved seniors that we know have needs that are not being addressed live work or spend time with family and in the community we intentionally look to have you know to look for a group of seniors who need this type of care that can get to our center through their own transportation or our transportation support within five to ten miles or 15 to 20 minutes and so that is still a big part of the need that models like ours saw which is to just be there you walk into the clinic and it's designed differently it's a more open layout there's wider halls there's different flooring there's mobility accessibility for people in wheelchairs or have walkers there's more visibility of the medical assistant team and clinician into what's going on in the clinic and then you start to feel on the clinician side that you know your visit schedule is less busy in terms of numbers of patients on a given day but we're talking about people who do have needs so you start to meet your panel they're all people who want what you're trying to deliver and you get to know them over the course of the first year and you see them two times four times six times 12 times over the year and so even that basic apparatus of being where seniors need us to be and having the time and frequency of visits in the first year of the primary care relationship Mm-hmm. It's still something that most seniors don't get. And then I think you get the additional reinforcement of, hey, I have this pharmacist that I can pull in around polypharmacy, or I'm joining this high-risk huddle about my patients who are leaving the hospital with a transitions of care nurse and my colleagues, or the medical group is doing a partnership with an urgent care at home clinical program or a serious mental illness for seniors program. And they're coming to us and telling us about updates about what's happening with our patients or calling me when something comes up. And so you start to see the the clinical model and the intent more deeply unfold over time. Mm -hmm. A couple of deeper dive questions. So it sounds like patients are being seen instead of the average, which is two to three times a year for for the senior population. It's it's many more times than that higher frequency of visits and, and you know, therefore developing the relationship, really getting to know the patient, being able to manage uh, some of the challenges they're facing. 
how much time do I have if I'm a practicing physician? How much, how much time do I have to see any given patient in terms of the appointment length? We, we generally orient around 20 to 45 minute visits. We've also done work obviously through COVID to insert more non-face-to-face touch points through tel- you know, phone and video uh, to expand the touch. So it, the visit length is longer. The visit frequency is more on average. It's, it's around the four to six range on average, but it can skew very widely. There are patients who come every two or four weeks, and that might be for a period of time and because the clinician and they talked about it and maybe because that's what they want and what we're here to deliver. And so it is more time with patients, uh, both in per encounter and then uh, absolutely over time. And it sounds to me, I'm, I'm getting this picture of there are other people around who are really there to help and support me and, and the patient and their family, whether it's transitions of care, behavioral health, pharmacy. How easily accessible is that? Are these people on site? Are they available you know, through virtual? How does that work? So we, we've done a mix of things. and. Frankly, I think this is an area where everybody serving patients is trying to figure out how to scale the support and clinical engagement from these different skill sets that we know is needed. And so I I won't say we figured it out, but uh, things generally work and we're trying to make them better. We found that you don't need everybody to be in person to do this type of integrated care effectively. What it does require is that there's regular team communication clear outlining of who's on first on what, and then obviously the data and program kind of management structure supports the effective engagement. So we've done things like dedicate a uh, clinic room to telemedicine and actually schedule people who come in with a telepsychiatrist partner we work with. And so they're coming to the clinic that they know with the people they know, and then they're, but they're coming for a behavioral health visit that they've agreed to and scheduled. And then it, it's in a space that they feel comfortable with and they know, but it's with a big screen and a good audio setup with a treating psychiatrist or psychologist. Um, we've done things like, you know, the patient comes out of the room with the PCP and we give, we work with the patient and put on an iPad our care management nurse or our virtual pharmacist. So that we're trying to figure out ways to, again, get away from that you know, sort of delay by referral construct Mm -hmm. and bring the real-time human-to-human engagement. And then sometimes, obviously, staff are on site. And so we've taken some approaches where maybe our pharmacist or nurse or social work colleague rotates across a set of clinics and they stack some in-person visits on specific days, but then they're also doing the remote virtual engagement. From a workforce perspective, you know, it's Mm -hmm. been important to figure out hybrid approaches too. So because uh, we need to support the sustainability that clinicians need. And there are many purely remote opportunities uh, for people of different backgrounds. And we do need that intersection with the team there seeing patients and with patients directly themselves at times. So it sounds like the, the primary care clinicians and their teams are really focused on being trained and supported in, in this value-based care, keeping people out of emergency rooms, out of hospitals as healthy as possible. How does that figure when you have to refer to a specialist, a cardiologist, pulmonologist, endocrinologist? How do you incorporate them into that value-based mindset? And also when you have to actually refer to procedure or in fact to a hospital? Yeah, well, at a core level, we do what every other primary care group does. We have the available specialists or hospitals that are in network for 
uh, Medicare and they accept Medicare as a government program and or they've taken on Medicare Advantage network contract relationships. And so we have that data and visibility based on who our patient is getting their coverage from about what, what hospitals and specialists are available to them, at least in network. And so that's a standard for, we think you have a clinical need, here's who we've worked with, here's who's in network, we make a referral, we follow up about it and ensure that they're getting into the care that they need. Uh, on the hospital side, we connect through real-time data in our transitions of care program around patients who are being admitted and work with hospital-based care management and utilization teams to really understand how can we be effective in during their stay? How can we be uh, really on top of discharge planning with the hospital team and make sure that that segue back into ambulatory care and home is really effectively overseen by that patient's primary care team and that we're there to make sure that the gaps get solved that commonly can come up, uh, whether it's medication reconciliation or a quick start to home health uh, that's needed for someone who's going back to the home but has uh, skill needs and things like that. Um, we are going down a path of becoming much more intentional about looking at our specialty care network. This is across the human enterprise, but also specific to our primary care group. There is so much need to bring the principles we talked about in primary care to specialty care. And it's starting to happen in certain pockets. It's starting to happen through specialist groups that have adopted MIPS or other CMS framework. It's starting to happen through groups that have um, participated in CMS, specialty care-related demonstration projects. It's coming through private players where specialty groups in different areas are building more of a population support mentality. Maybe they're taking subcapitation or risk. At the core of it, we want to see really tightly engaged, evidence-based, specialty practice. And that's when been one of the major innovation areas in American medicine in the last 50 years. It's been amazing therapeutic and procedural advances, amazing diagnostic advances, and somehow we're not using it in a fully evidence-based way mm -hmm. when it comes to what actually happens in the community. And so solving that intersection uh, we're very aligned with looking at outcomes, looking at patient shared decision-making. Our PCPs want to be in the flow with our specialists, what they're thinking, what they're doing. And so we've instituted a variety of referral engagement. We do a lot of work to make sure we get specialist notes back. Uh, these are still common challenges, as you know, in day-to-day -day practice that we mm -hmm. haven't fully solved through technology. And so, yeah. you know, if we're going to deliver on our intent to be true partners with our patients through the totality of their healthcare journey, we have to be engaged with their hospital care and specialty care. And, and we need to be proponents and supporters of the evolution of those domains of care back towards more comprehensive, um, holistic care and towards more evidence-based practice uh, and really put the outcomes framework on it uh, like we do in primary care now in these models to say, are the right things happening and is it adding up to what patients want and we want out of our healthcare industry. How does technology fit into this model, the CentRL model? What is different about the technology infrastructure that you are putting into place? Can I say it's a curse and a blessing? I, mm -hmm. I think there's so much potential. We, like many others, use one of the common EMRs for ambulatory care, and they're all well-intended and work for the basics of 
fee-for-service traditional primary care practice. They are not built to support team-based care like we've talked about. Uh, if you want to integrate additional functionality, sometimes there's limitations. Uh, even data sharing, which is expanding and data interoperability is improving, but still hits limits. And then really the ability to instill in the EMR the clinical protocols that are specific to patient needs and to more specific types of models is also quite limited. So it's necessary to have an EMR, obviously. I will say it's not a complete fit for the needs of models like ours. So we end up also wrapping around a lot of other technology, whether it's patient engagement. Let's make sure that people obviously know about their appointments, but if they don't need to be in the clinic to fill out a form, let's just do that much more simply over time. We wrap around a population health management program structure you know, and platform because we need to give the rest of our non-billing interdisciplinary care team a way to see the patient's data, a way to enable their workflows, a way to look with their panels of patients that they're working with. And that's very tough to do right now. You can't do all that in the EMR. One of the things we've been talking about recently is obviously the potential benefit of generative AI. It's, uh, it's still early, but when I think about how much we disable our clinicians in any practice environment from spending more of their time with patients, thinking through clinical decision-making, connecting with other team members, whether they're in our group or outside our group, like specialists or hospital-based clinicians, we, we really need to flip it on its head and give them a massive amount of time back. And so we're cautiously excited about doing some tests like other groups are doing around the ability to automate more of the documentation burden that exists in any practice. And we sometimes have more of because we're also bringing in hospital discharge notes or real-time ADT pings as emails or all these other things that we ask people to attend to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's going to take a while to mature and figure out how to do it well, but uh, that's another pathway that we're exploring really to help our clinicians fully inhabit the intent that they have for their patients and what our model is meant to support. In our correspondence, when I asked you about one of the aspects that you're really excited about, you wrote back, and I'm going to quote here, the power of data and measurement in senior-focused primary care. Can you say how are you using data and where do you see the uh, possibility and opportunity here? We have a lot of data. We have all of our claims data from our plan partners. We have our EMR data. We have ancillary data feeds, uh, like from HIEs and lab partners and all of it. And we use it for the means I mentioned before, which is to try to equip our teams to understand what's happening with their panel and, and shine a light on gaps or intervention opportunities that are going to help them move the needle on behalf of their patients. I think part of what we're lacking nationally is a clear focus and alignment on what true health outcomes are. Hmm. That's not a problem we can solve ourselves. And so many groups like ours look at, as you flag, what's the ER utilization rate? What's the avoidable ambulatory sensitive care hospitalization rate? What's the specialist use and appropriateness? All these other vectors. Uh, But there's not national alignment about what the most important health outcome clinical utilization and quality of care metrics are. Obviously, HEDIS and STAR frameworks exist, and those are important, and we attend to all of that as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we need to go further. Mm-hmm. And that's one aspiration, I hope, not just for our model and our organization, but also for our nation around 
what are we getting mm-hmm. out of what we're delivering for people and funding, not just in our model, but more broadly. So I would love to see, mm-hmm. because we're a community-based provider for seniors, I would love to see more community-oriented data with yeah. national alignment about the outcomes that matter for mm-hmm. segments of the population like our seniors. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we're not systematically reporting loneliness in seniors. Mm-hmm. There's just how people spend their final days, the time on hospice or engagement with palliative care, just all these other things that we clinically and from a life experience perspective mm-hmm. know that matter. And and we have the data to do it across the country. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud to be a part of Humana. And Humana has put uh, its own measures out there as tests. Uh, you know, the Humana team, through its research focus, mm-hmm. built a uh, composite preventive and chronic care fetus metric as a test last year, and that looked at what is the differences we're seeing in patients that Medicare Advantage-related apparatus's ability to improve preventive and chronic care rates through HEDIS based on people's racial and ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. and categories, and does do different frameworks collapse the difference? Because we all know there's a difference, but how are we bringing the average up and, and making the low-end much higher than it used to be, so we leave fewer people behind. And so I'm proud to be a part of an organization that's using millions of Medicare members' data to shine a light on where we need to go. And one of the other examples of this is we'll have a publication through our health services research team at Humana later this year, I think, around what is the impact of our category of primary care. So looking at Mm -hmm the experience and impact of senior-focused primary care groups, where there are Humana members as health plan members, what is the Mm -hmm. increased engagement with primary care, what is the impact on avoidable ER admissions, avoidable hospitalizations, Mm -hmm. and other Mm -hmm. factors. And I think that will be a powerful statement about this type of care model, no matter who it's funded or how it's set up. But just does this type of care make a difference? And and the results yeah. are very aligned with you know my personal belief that people need this type of care much more often. Yeah, no, this that's great. In fact, I was actually going to ask you about demonstrated outcomes to date. It sounds like that publication is going to come out this year. Are there any early findings or outcomes you can share with us? In general, I'd say obviously we strive for and often achieve ninety plus percent continuous patient engagement with the frequency of care that we described before. Organizations like ours also strive for net promoter scores in the 80 to 90 range, mm-hmm. and we achieve that too. We look at EDIS performance, and on average, we get to four to four and a half star performance, and we have some clinics that are five-star EDIS performance. And so we're always looking at how do we move the average and the floor up so that we, again, deliver on more of our attend for patients. When you look at, at the utilization side, you can see 10, 20% plus differences on a risk-adjusted basis for a similar population of seniors that's cared for with this type of model versus those who are not. And really the critical distinguishing factor uh, is really whether there's a two-sided risk arrangement. Because once you get into two-sided risk, you really have to build the muscles that we've been talking about in this session you have to develop the clinical protocols. You have to develop the training. You have to have the intersections with real-time data about what's happening with your patient. You have to do transitions of care. You have to build the data infrastructure we talked about. So 
two-sided risk, especially the downside part, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is the big stick. That is where it gets serious, where you see the reallocation of resources, both towards this type of comprehensive model in some form. It doesn't have to be exactly our model or somebody else's. You can do this through a fee-for-service health system for participating in an ACO model with two-sided risk. You can, you can do it in a lot of ways, but that's where you get the breakthrough uh, and you go beyond the incremental and you get to really a full redesign and enabling infrastructure. Yeah, I think this last point you mentioned is so important uh, to align the payment with the right al- outcomes. And so in order to to really get the payment, you need to put the programs, the data, all the things you were talking about in place. You, you do need that payment and you do need to get the savings as you were talking about as well. And of course, that I think you called it the stick, the downside risk, uh, which is that you, you have to then pay for spending more than you uh, promised you would. You know, I also just want to say, I really applaud your perspective. I mean, this notion of not just meeting all the standard clinical quality safety utilization metrics that are in existence today, but also talking about, and you use these words, what really matters to patients and their families and the community and, you know, going outside of those traditional metrics. And I know Humana has been a leader in this. You mentioned one, which is loneliness, which is epidemic, right? And we know it's epidemic. The mm-hmm. Surgeon General has written a whole book just about this. In Britain, they have a, a someone who at, at the national level who literally is in charge of loneliness and, and dealing with that uh, issue. It is epidemic here in the country and elsewhere across the globe. So that the, the notion of, you know, palliative care, the quality of life issues you were mentioning, you know, independence of living, the sorts of prompts, those patient reported outcomes that are really what matters to you. It's not just checking another box in terms of the quality metrics that we have to check. So I really, I just wanted to point out, I, you, you said it and I, I know you, you all are working on it. And, and I think it's absolutely critical that we have folks who are, who are doing that, not just on behalf of their own organization and their own patient population, but seeing it as you did and called it out as a national agenda. I appreciate that, Zev, and I, I, I'm excited for our next wave at Humana around the kind of integrated and coordinated care that we're talking about in this broader aspiration. And that's part of the reason why the center well area of Humana has come together, which we are a part of. So we are the primary care arm of essentially a paragnostic healthcare services group mm-hmm. now under the Humana umbrella. But it also includes the largest home health organization in the country, Kindred Home Health, which is now Centerwell Home Health, and also a very large and effective pharmacy solutions and benefit manager organization that's now Centerwell Pharmacy. And so those are, when I think about those areas, there's no question that pharmacy-related issues and care and costs and all of it are very important for seniors. There's no question that home health and moving more care appropriately to the home, plus doing the basics of home health well are crucial to seniors as they age and have issues that require that type of care. And so part of what the organization is doing is marching towards a vision of really delivering on something that I don't think exists, which is a integrated senior care ecosystem. Mm. And that's part of the next wave of our journey here, which goes beyond primary care, which has taken a decade or two about the partnership model, the ACO participation, the building of full risk care delivery, whether it's our group or partners. Uh, so, so really, there's much more to go, and that's what we're oriented around. 
Yeah. You know, I know we didn't get around to it in, in this interview, but I, I'm so glad you called that out that this, what you're building is a larger ecosystem that includes uh, pharmacy and home care. Uh, in fact, I, I recall your your CEO has actually called this out years ago even and said that this this coming decade is the decade where care is going to move into the home. And, you know, with Kindred, national leader in home-based care, that that is part of your organization. I, I just find that so exciting that you're you're putting that all together to really create the seamless care for seniors. Absolutely. I think we can make another wave of major difference for people who touch our ecosystem. And that's what we're going to be going after in the coming years. Yeah. I have so many more questions, but I think we're going to, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to talk in, in the not too distant future. Sort of a, a last question. I will give you the last word as well. You're giving a presentation to hospital leaders across the country. What recommendation, what critical message do you want to get across to system leaders? I would advise health system and hospital leaders to find a way to look at their community impact in an organized fashion across payer segments and to really maintain support and activate any internal efforts that they have going on or could do that move the needle on community health and build the measurement and outcomes infrastructure that we've talked about. We all need to go beyond what's been required. And I've talked to and recruited many clinical leaders who've been a part of major hospital systems, built a home-based palliative care program, trialed an extensivist model, and they just get stuck and don't scale. They don't get the support and advancement and those clinical leaders then come and seek out models like ours because we want all of that. And, and it could be the financial alignment, it could be the strategic alignment, it could be the culture or other demands. But I think we need, as a country, our hospital system leaders to break through the financial shackles of fee-for-service and really reactivate their commitment to shifting the needle on community-based health and outcomes. Wow, that was incredibly well said and profound and so critically important. I love that phrase, the financial shackles of fee-for-service. I know those shackles firsthand, having spent decades trying to create programs like the ones you're talking about and just being shackled by the predominant fee-for-service payment model. And so I just, again, really appreciate uh, Dr. Vivigarg, for you for what you're doing, what your primary care organization is doing uh, within Humana, the integration, that larger ecosystem of care that you are putting together for seniors, just phenomenal. I, I promised you I would give you the last word. Is there any last thing you want to say before I sign off to our listeners today? Come work for us. We're a group <laughs> like ours. I think many more clinicians and non-clinicians should get exposure to full risk care delivery environments. And so I being a little cheeky that, but also being honest because mm -hmm. we need more people, whether they stay in this kind of model or not, to understand what the total picture is mm -hmm. and to get a handle on the clinical and operational and financial intersections so that they can paint the picture about what patients and communities really need mm -hmm. and bring together these levers and programs and mechanisms. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, just for a second, I mean, putting cheekiness aside for a moment, the burnout amongst physicians is around 50%. One out of two physicians in this country is burnt out. I think a primary care is probably more than that. Do you have any evidence to demonstrate uh, that folks who come work for you, uh, providers, nurses, others, experience less of that demoralization and disenfranchisement? We have more work to do. I think we see spots of it 
And some of the things we talked about earlier are things that we're trying to deepen our conviction and investment and scale more broadly. Our model should be more supportive and sustainable. And so some of it is how we bring it into light at every clinic across our national footprint. And there's very basic things that we all want at work. We want an environment where we're happy to show up. We think we're gonna be able to use our professional purpose in an effective way. We like the people we work with and there's good teaming and communication and culture. And then we also seek more. And you know, I, I think the administrative friction of any primary care environment, because you know, we train as PCPs and we say, let me take care of it all. We are mm -hmm. the place where things that are not attended to by others come. And we, we try not to say no, that's not our professional ethos to say no. So I think the struggle we all have is to operationalize that intent more effectively. And so things like letting go of some of the documentation burden, simplifying, automating, enabling through generative AI, whatever it might be. I think um, paying more attention to the flexibility that people now need. We have many two professional couples. One part of the couple works for us as a clinician. The other part may be a clinician or not, but we all know what that life context looks like, especially if you have children and or aging loved ones that you're supporting. And so I think there's some core things that we are doing tests, we are assessing, and my hope is that we're gonna to start to show improvement on pajama time, improvement on our sentiment about coming to work, improvement about people's sense that they could be sustained in their professional journey at our practicing group for a decade or two, not just three to five years. And so I think that's very much on top of mind for myself and our leadership team. Obviously, it's already day in and day out for our clinicians because the reality is it's still a hard job. Mm -hmm. Taking care of patients, having the emotional engagement, the clinical complexity, you know, and, and that's where training can also be very helpful because people want to help and they want to do a good job. And none of us are great at everything clinically. And so training and effective partnership and leadership support to help people build support, run things by other people, build competencies are all part of people feeling like they can do what we're, they feel a large degree of responsibility for, which is to do amazing things for their patients. Um, so I think we're at the start of a journey where we're going to, we're getting real about it, Zev. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're developing measurement frameworks around it. We're looking at things like pajama time. We're looking at improvement in it based on template changes we make, workflow updates. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're starting to build the mentality and operational focus to really move the needle on this. Yeah. Vivek, I, I just have to say, I so appreciate your honesty, your transparency, your humanism. And for me, I think one of the most critical issues in healthcare today is is leadership. And I believe we need a, a new type of leadership. And I, I think you represent that in spades. And so I just wanted to call that out and, and appreciate you and, and what you're doing and, and in, most importantly, how you're doing it, how you're going about it and, and your intention and the actions you're taking. So once again, I can't thank you enough, enough Dr. Vivek Garg. Um, and as I do every episode, uh, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. Again, echoing what Dr. Garg just said, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, 
families, communities, and our society. My friends, uh, this is Dr. Zeb Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.